This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. We've got a chock block episode for you today, and uh, my co pilot is Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny. Hi, Dan. There was quite a bit of worry ahead of NVIDIA's fourth quarter results, but the AI darling knocked it out of the park once again, helping lift markets with the Nikkei surpassing records set back in 1989. Plus, UK banks benefit from higher interest rates, though China worries hobble HSBC. And Dan, you've been chatting to the legend that is Terry Smith. Yeah, so the fun Smith sort of icon is on the show to discuss what he sees as one of the hot investment themes at the moment, which is weight loss drugs. And with warnings from the hospitality sector that without help from this year's budget, many businesses will struggle to keep the doors open. Now, Danny's been chatting to one company that's actually expanding at the moment. Yes, former Dragon Sarah Willingham and her husband Michael Toxvert have just added piano works to their nightcap empire. And despite a soft start to trading this year, they are both confident that things can only get better. I think the Governor of the Bank of England also agrees that things might get better because we discussed comments from Andrew Bailey that he thinks the UK has already left recession in the rearview mirror. Plus, there's going to be some new banknotes featuring King Charles, but we'll discuss all that a bit later on. A lot to get through, Dan, but it, isn't it nice to be able to kick off with some good news for a change? <laughs> and I really feel that in the couple of days leading up to NVIDIA's results, as, as I mentioned at the very beginning, there was an awful lot of, oh, are we about to see a sort of writing of things? Are we about to get a reality check? We saw NVIDIA's shares actually fall quite significantly uh, in the couple of days before the results, uh, 4% um, the day before the results, around 2% the day of the results before obviously end of day because they reported after close, after the bell. And the numbers, frankly, are astonishing. When I say they knocked it out the park, they totally knocked it out the park. I mean, revenues up by 265% in the three months to the 28th of January compared to where they were a year earlier. So for a year as a whole, that's turnover more than doubled to just over $60 billion. And I think what was really important was the forecast because we've spoken a lot about AI and, you know, NVIDIA's just kept knocking it out the park. But a lot of people have been saying, right, well, it's probably as good as it gets. This kind of growth cannot continue. And the fact that it forecast a 233% jump in quarterly revenues for this quarter ahead of analyst estimates really sort of sealed the deal. And off the back of this, particularly with the comments from the NVIDIA boss who's saying, look, you know, this at the moment is the tipping point for AI. We are about to see accelerated computing and generative AI just explode. 
really did make markets excited. And waking up this morning to see the Nikkei surpass its 1989 record. I mean, a lot of people, Dan, thought that that was the lead ceiling for the Nikkei, that there was absolutely no way, particularly when we're talking at a time when Japan is technically in recession. This was huge. And we saw the stock 600 also boasted by technology stocks jumping to a record. But something that we've spoken about a lot is the fact that London markets just don't have that same kind of exposure. And because of that, they've looked in the doldrums. Yeah, I mean, the FTSE, the, the FTSE does, on a day when we see all these markets jump up and, and it certainly as we're recording this, we're seeing future prices for what the US might do later on today. And it, it looks very good. You know, the FTSE's not doing anything, but I guess, you know, FTSE's just got these sort of, you know, companies, old economy companies that um, quietly do their thing. Um, when everyone's getting excited about sort of growth opportunities and, and, and markets, new record heights, it's inevitable that FTSE just left behind. But there will be times when, um, you know, perhaps ner- investors are a bit more nervous and, and the FTSE comes into its own because it's got sort of companies that just keep sort of trucking along. So, uh, you know, we had a bit of news from in- in Divior, the drugs company saying it, it's going to be potentially the next one in line to um, move its stock market listing to the US, the primary listing, which means um, it's up currently in the FTSE 250 index. If it moves the primary listing to the US, it means it won't be able to qualify for these FTSE indices anymore. And it's just another sort of, sort of red mark against the UK in thinking oh, so many companies that just don't, they're not excited by being here. They want to go overseas. They want to get a better valuation somewhere else. And um, yeah, so the London Stock Exchange won't be happy about that one. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. We talk about Nikkei doing so well. I remember, you know, the start of last year, everyone was sort of saying, you know, Japan is, you know, is sort of been left behind for a while, but actually, the, you know, things are cheap there. Companies are, are sort of changing a bit. They're going to be paying a bit more dividends. Lots of investors want Asian exposure, but China's been so disappointing in the last couple of years, they're looking for somewhere else. And, so, you know, well, there's plenty of decent uh, and importantly mature companies Um on in the Japanese stock market that are you know, still still growing, still making lots of money. And of course, they also have the sort of the, the tech edge as well. So, you know, it's it's it's. I'm not surprised that people started looking to Japan. What surprises me is that last year Japan outperformed the US in terms of the S and P 500, and it's doing exactly the same thing this year. So, uh, yeah, yeah it, you know, how long it lasts, who knows? But certainly, as we're recording this, yeah, lots more positivity, and I think that and, and really that's a good thing. Um, we've had a lot of, sort of periods where markets have been a little bit in the doldrums or uncertainty, but um, certainly as we record this, yeah, positive mood or nearly, nearly across the board. I think it's really important when we're talking about this sector, though, particularly generative AI, we're all getting excited about it. But with NVIDIA, we have to be aware that there are a few tailwinds not tailwinds, of course, that would be the thing that is lifting them up, but headwinds, things that are potentially going to slow down the trajectory of this meteoric rise of this stock. Uh, and it has been meteoric, I mean, the, you know, the best performing stock of the um, S&P 500 over the past 12 months. It, it's just been incredible. But we've got to remember that with AI, a 
a lot of governments are going to have to get their fingers out. They are going to have to start thinking about regulation. They're going to have to start thinking about the potential impact that AI has on workplaces, on discrimination, on all of those kind of things which really matter when you are talking about the economy as a whole. And I think another really important thing to consider, you were just talking about China. Yeah, absolutely. China's growth has looked really disappointing. They're expecting the IMF 5.4% this year, which I suppose here in the UK sounds quite good. But when we've been talking, used to talking about double digits for China, it is disappointing. And the fact that there are still ongoing tensions between China and the United States and potentially further limitations to where NVIDIA can sell its chips, I think is really important to watch, particularly off the back of those comments from Donald Trump. You know, we can't get through a podcast at the moment without talking about the Donald. He has said that if he returns to the White House, he would look at increasing tariffs on Chinese goods. And you can bet your bottom dollar that we would then see that trade war really ramp up, something which could have repercussions for companies globally and certainly NVIDIA specifically. So there were a lot of grumblings before this earnings update that just maybe NVIDIA was overvalued. Once again, NVIDIA has proved that it can meet expectations. But I think investors need to be hyper aware that we can't know where the ceiling is at the moment because this is new technology. We know that companies, if they're investing, even if they are in the UK or Japan, they're dealing with recession, AI is something which can help productivity and potentially reduce headcount. So it's something that businesses are up for spending on. But there will be a ceiling and investors, I think, need to have in their own minds, they can't know what the ceiling for NVIDIA is, but they need to have an idea of what the ceiling for them is, how much they think the stock is worth, how much they are willing to pay. And when that level is reached, they need to really seriously think hard about what they do then. So we, we've had a couple of um, chats about technology from different people on the podcast in the last month. We've got uh, another couple of guests lined up coming over the coming weeks. I, 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 normally, I think, OK, we, we don't want to sort of keep talking about the same subject matters, but I, we've got some experts to talk about different parts of the tech sector. And I think one of them is, is going to be talking a little bit about NVIDIA as well. So don't miss those interviews. because I think, that I'm, you know, I reckon they'll be really useful, particularly so many people are exposed to this area. So, um, so shall we move on to a different industry sector? Because whilst tech has been taking all the all the headlines, we've also had all the banks in the on the London Stock Exchange been reporting over the last week. Um, now, there's been some quite interesting sort of bits of news there. Now, we, we talked about FTSE 100 um, slightly being sort of left behind one of the reasons why that index has been left behind is because um hsbc had pretty bad reaction from the market to its latest results its shares were down the most since the covid crash um you know at one point they were down more than nine percent and you know last time we saw a scale that sort of scale in one day for the share price fall 
was going back to the financial crisis in 2008. So um, by the time the end of the day, the, the shares are settled down just over just down 8% um, in line with the COVID crash. So you have to think, what, what on earth is going on here? So the bank reported uh, an 80% drop in quarterly profits. It took a $3 billion charge in the value of its stake in the Chinese bank. It lowered its forecasts for, uh, sorry, the bank also forecast lower net interest income for this year than the, than the market is being expecting because it, it essentially it's reflecting signals from US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England that we might see interest rate cuts this year. So, you know, I, I think there was a lot of stuff in there um, just catch people a little bit off guard. Um, also, it, it, I've always find bank results absolutely impossible to try and get your head around. It, they're, 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 <laughs> They're so they're presented in a way that you know if you don't have an accounting degree, um, you're thinking where, where where do I start with all this information? It's just pages and pages and pages of it. So, and reading some of the investment bank research notes, they were even trying to sort of you know muddle through and say what you know what is it that's spooking the market? We're trying to understand here. So, um, you know these so-called experts are sort of going scratching their heads. And so I think we we saw you know, this big hit on the market here. Now of course. HSBC, it, like like many of the other banks you have on the London Stock Exchange, they pay a nice dividend. So investors like to hold these shares because they like the generous yield of it. Um, income funds also invest in banking stocks quite often. So we've got a situation where you know you, you might find if you're saving for your pension or you have your pension and you're, you've got lots of income stocks, you might have exposure to the banking sector. So Whilst these results are always quite complicated to get your head round, it is worth trying to just take a look to see what people are saying about them, to understand what's going on, and, and importantly, to understand the risks, because the banking sector has a habit of going through a phase of, um, well, so there's always seems to be something wrong or something troubling uh, the market. So obviously, during, during COVID, we had, what does it mean for people who can't pay back their loans? Um, and then if you go back before that, it's like they had the, the, the PPI uh, mis-selling crisis. You know, how much more money are these companies going to have to sort of pay as compensation for mis-selling PPI? But there's a new one now, which is to do with car finance. So um, Lloyd's is one of the ones that's quite exposed here. So Lloyd's has set aside £450 million to cover the potential cost of investigation into these car finance deals by the regulator. So um, what, what the FCA is doing is, is, is looking to see whether people have been paying too much for cars and looking at the type of commission that was um, being earned on car financing. So the, the big unknown is, is £450 million enough for Lloyd's? Is it, you know, we saw during PPI, all these banks kept having to come back and say, actually, we, have, we need to put more aside and then more aside. So there's a big unknown there. Um, Barclays actually had a positive share price reaction to its results. It's doing a bit of a shake-up plan. It's it, it, it's making these, you know, saying we'll, we'll split into these divisions and this is what we're doing. We're, we're, we're going to return more money to shareholders, cut costs. But really, it's nothing radical there. Um, and the other one was NatWest reported its biggest annual profit since the financial crisis. Um, of course, that was that was helped by high interest rates, and because the outlook is for interest rates to, to, to sort of be cut um, some point this year and beyond, and so uh, you, know, 
when you look at these banking results, you must always think about what's going to happen next rather than looking backwards. So um, the, the, the company definitely seemed quite confident. It's finally appointed a permanent chief exec, Paul Thwaite, who's um, sort of been the caretaker CEO. He, CEO he's, he's going to do it permanently. And of course, the, the government still owns a big chunk of the company and wants to do this big share scheme later in the year, potentially in June is what we're hearing. Uh, where the public have a chance to buy the government's stake in NatWest. So um, I guess a bit, of, a bit of positive news is, is sort of sets the scene here. But um, overall, you know, banks, is <laughs> as complicated as ever, always twists and turns. Um, I mean, I don't know, Danny, do you ever, you, you comment a lot on the markets to, Please, you've got to be honest with me here. I reckon, I reckon anyone who comes to markets would say, "What's what's the, the sector you least likely, you know, least enjoy commenting?" It's got to be banks, isn't it? So, it it does have to be banks, but there are certain aspects of banking which are massively interesting. And what you said about the whole car finance thing really struck a chord with me because I actually got an email through the other day from. One of these companies, we used to get loads of messages and texts and emails from people that said, we can help you claim back your missold PPI. Um, But now they're beginning to send out these emails saying you had car finance. Uh, If you were missold in some way, if you were uh, paid more than you should have done, we can help you get some money back. And those have started to trickle in. And it, it caught me by surprise because I'd not really sort of been aware of it, sort of on the periphery thinking, well, it probably doesn't you know, apply to me. And then you start thinking about it, thinking, well, how many cars have I had? How many finance agreements have I had? And, oh, yeah, it might apply to me. And then, of course, you get this email through saying, we can help you. And you've got to stop and think because you can do it yourself in exactly the same way as PPI. You can do this yourself. You can put in the claim, explore what potentially you might be owed for any of this without then having to give a portion of it to any of these companies. But you're absolutely right. I mean, banks are incredibly complex. And particularly when you get into that sort of world where it's not just retail banking, it's investment banking. And then you start to have to look at geopolitics and, you know, the whole Asia exposure. But I just think with HSBC, it's quite interesting because Asia is a big place and it's it's sort of stuck quite a lot of eggs in one basket. And I think a lot of investors and commentators are going to be watching to see its strategy over the next five, 10 years to see whether or not it diversifies away from sort of China, Hong Kong and starts to focus on sort of other Asian countries, which are doing particularly well at the moment. A lot of people are sort of looking there. Japan, you were talking about earlier, rather than China. So yeah, a, a lot to watch. But you're absolutely right, banks. It's just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're going to talk a bit about the UK economy and potential green shoots that the, uh, have been seen by the government of the Bank of England a bit later on. But first, um, I was lucky enough to get um, some time with two important people from Fundsmith. So Fundsmith, uh, for, for those who don't know, is, is, is an asset management company. Um, their flagship product is the Fundsmith Equity Fund, one of the most popular, if not the most popular fund with retail investors in the UK. So um, Terry Smith is a fund manager and Julian Robbins is the head of research. So um, I, I, I would, I, I spent some time with them having a, a chat and I thought it was interesting how um, I was offered uh, the chance to speak with both of them. So normally when you think, okay, what 
when you've had someone like Terry Smith, who's always been like the spokesperson, why is there someone else being put uh, put forward to 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 contribute? Um, you know, Terry is now seventy, then seventy one uh, fairly soon, I, and I wondered, oh, I wondered if uh, you know, Julian is going to be taking over the fund. So um, I, I I sort of asked Terry if he was going to sort of either follow in the footsteps of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, very famous investors, and keep running money well into old age, or whether you know could he could he sort of clarify is Julian actually going to be taking over the fund? And th- this is how he replied. Well, I mean, I think we can say yes to both of those. <laughs> Except for the word soon. Um, you know, he's, I mean, he's like, I don't know, you're too young to have watched Are You Being Served, the, uh, the sitcom, where young Mr. Grace was always described as young Mr. Grace being about 80. Um, and look, uh, yeah, I intend to keep going. Um, I don't feel that I can't keep going in terms of the, the, my, uh, the, the, you know, the way that I feel about uh, sort of managing the money and coming into work and doing it. Uh, it's what I do, um, and uh, I'm going to go on as long as I can. And when I can't, Julian's going to take over. And I don't think, you know, for one thing, there may be an event that I don't know about that changes that. After all, you know, uh, and therefore, you know, who knows what it will bring. But if I can, I'm going to go on for quite a long, and I hope Julian goes on for a long time after. We we we, we both like the example of my father-in-law, um, who's roughly speaking 95, and until he was 92, um, he was a working every day as a plastic surgeon in Los Angeles. And we kept telling him that he should probably retire. And he said, uh, oh, absolutely. And then he would go into work the next day. And finally, the only way we could actually get him to retire was to sell the, sell his, uh, his the, the building where his um, surgery was and give away all his operating tools. And even then he said he was going to rent another one and start again. So, you know, we, the again, again, living in the States, I think you get a slightly different perspective on retirement. It's... Um, it, it's uh, you know we we work because we I see lots of uh, articles in in particularly in the UK news UK newspapers about you know can I re- you know I've got X Y Z amount of thousands in the bank you know can I retire at fifty five we don't want to retire this is I mean this is great so we've published four videos featuring different bits from my interview with um, the Fundsmith pair now these are available on Age of Bell's website or look on the Age of Bell's uh, YouTube channel uh, Julian Terry always got really interesting to say things to say and, and in the interview they, they talked about one of the hot investment themes at the moment which is weight loss drugs so um now we'll play a snippet now what they said but you can d- make sure you watch the video in full to get the, the whole interview i always quote the the example of of which a lot which any any family with kids that have embarked on a long car journey um know which is that you tell your young kids that this is going to be a, a six hour road trip uh, and at the end of uh, the driveway, as you back out, they say, are we there yet? And there's always a kind of there, there is, the stock market has got this real are we there yet mentality. And in, in the case of weight loss, I mean, I mean, the the, the, the legal, the two the two legal um, drugs for it. So so Zetbound and, and Wigovi have only been launched in, in, in a handful of markets. Um, the the Eli Lilly compound, as is now called Zetbound, as it was only approved for weight loss um, in the US at the end of last year. So I mean, it, it's we really are. I mean, I hate the use of the word innings, but we really are in the very early innings of all this. Um, the second thing to say is that uh, we we hear a lot uh, and we read a lot about uh, about competition. It's like really, you know, there's not there's only going to be two players in a market this big. 
So there's undoubtedly going to be competition. But then the third thing is that at the moment, these uh, these drugs are extremely expensive. Um, so a, a month supply of the medium dose of Zetbound is $1,260. And I'll leave you to guess how I know that. Um, um, and <laughs> um, so obviously that is um, uh, if if you can't get it on insurance in the US, which is where I live, that's that's, you know, that's too expensive. But these things will get cheaper over time. And then the concept, uh, and then the other thing, of course, is that once you stop taking them, most people tend to put back on a lot of or all of the weight they've lost. So over the next um, uh, few years, uh, if you're talking of themes and, 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 and you, you rightly call the theme weight loss, what you're going to hear a lot more about over the next uh, few years and probably decades um, from uh, from Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly and other companies is the concept of weight management. So at the moment, these uh, these drugs are injectable uh, once a week. Uh, there are obviously a lot of, uh, of drugs that we uh, that we take daily statins or, or people take um, uh people take aspirin and i think we will get an over-the-counter version in oral form of uh at least these two semaglutide and tazepatide um which people will take on a somewhat regular basis to to ensure that they keep their weight off so we are i mean it's i mean it really is a case of you know come back to us in 10 years and and uh you know and and, and see see whether these the, these things have even been launched in some other countries. So it's it's very, very early days. It's worth mentioning that we have owned Novo Nordisk long before the words weight loss were ever mentioned in connection with it. What attracted to us, to the company, was its, I think, very unusual approach to drug discovery um, and to other aspects of the way that this business is run. We've got a bit of a soft spot for companies which have got family or foundations with controlling shareholdings. Um, who take a very long-term view, um, and uh, they've got exactly that basically, and uh, and I think it does enable them to do things uh, in terms of drug discovery and its approach, which others um, without that protection and with the market to satisfy might not do, uh, basically. Now, one of the things that immediately struck me when I was interviewing uh, Terry and Julie was that, that they seemed very confident talking about pharmaceuticals. But to me, Fundsmith is best known for investing in consumer goods companies and shies away from industries where earnings are unpredictable. So I asked Terry why he was willing to risk investing in the pharmaceutical space when the risks are high. And you know, arguably, you need to be an expert in science to understand what's actually going on. Well, there's a lot of things to say about that. One of them is one of our team, I think, is actually quite good at understanding this. So I think that's that's the one thing. Secondly, we agree with you, though, that this is a chancy sort of area. And we think that the, the, the chanciness, uh, as it were, falls into two kind of camps. One is biotechnology companies, you know, one product, biotechnology companies, which are pre-revenue, to use that polite term, um, and where one needs to bear in mind that the likelihood of any single uh, compound making it from inception through to commercial production is one in 10,000, right? Before you go betting on any of those. So you can forget us doing any of that, can't you? Then you've got the giants of the pharmaceutical industry, which cover a number of therapeutic areas and who seemingly uh, basically got into a drug discovery process in many cases uh, uh, that amounts to trying to do something which is another iteration of an existing uh, compound in order to get a, a new patent for something. And as a result of which, 
it's not very efficacious quite often. And and the the placebo does quite well in the final trial compared to it. And so that's and so you know you get things like these massive research facilities with two thousand or three thousand um, biochemists PhDs sitting in there. And the, the statistic I like on that one, but one in ten thousand for the biotech companies, is a statistic for the uh, for the, the big companies with their big factories producing these things, um, is that. Um, the average um, biochemist PhD who goes into a career in, in uh, drug research, if you round to the nearest whole number by the normal convention of rounding in a number, over his entire career will work on exactly zero drugs that make it. Right? Mm. And that's, it's dysfunctional at both ends. We think, we don't own any other drug companies, we just thought Novo is very unusual. And I think it's born of a number of things. I mentioned the family foundation. Uh, there. Um, I think that, that's one. The other one is because one of the things that people often say about um, uh, uh, Wagovi and Monjaro for that matter is, oh, this is a terrible thing because people have to take it for the rest of their lives. Well, maybe or maybe not, but it is being made by a company whose foundation is in drugs that you take for the remainder of your life. Yeah? Mm. And so I think, I think it's very unusual. I'm not saying we'll never find another company like it, but none spring to mind. So hopefully that's enough to whet your appetite to watch the full video. So do go to HFL website or to HFL's YouTube channel where you'll find four different videos that cover all the, the key topics from, from my discussion. So I, I do hope you enjoy them. Let's shift focus now to the UK hospitality sector, because with the budget just a couple of weeks away, there's been incessant lobbying and the hospitality sector has been pretty loud, really banging the drum, warning that if the Chancellor doesn't do something to help, then many more businesses will be forced to close their doors. They're talking about the increase in the national living wage coming up. They're talking about VAT. They're talking about business rates. Now, for businesses like Nightcap, which floated on the London Stock Exchange a couple of years ago, the last few weeks, January, has been incredibly challenging. And the soft start to the year overshadowed the announcement this week that the business was expanding. I caught up with the company's co-founders, former Dragon, Sarah Willingham, and her husband, Michael Toxford, earlier this week. Michael, Sarah, we're obviously talking just hours after the announcement that you've made about Piano Works. How long has that been in the pipeline and how exciting is that, Michael? Uh, well, it is super exciting. We have been working with, well, we've known them actually, the guys there who are great guys who founded Piano Works back in 2015. And we've known them since we started and listed Nightcap uh, in 2021. Uh, but we've only been working with them since uh, about November last year when we collaborated on bringing Piano Works into uh, one of our sites in Common Garden. And it went really, really well. And it was during that time that we then started talking uh, about the potential of Piano Works and the potential of Piano Works working with Nightcap um, on a more corporate basis. And yeah, so it's been uh, a few months in the, in the making now, and we're really proud to be uh, announcing the deal this morning. Sarah, I mean, you, you're just all smiles. Um, clearly, this is something which adds to the overall blueprint of Nightcap. 
it's really good. It's I mean, it's what we've talked about for for um, since we started Nightcap. Actually, the idea of bringing together lots of different brands that are all best in class of, of excellence in in lots of different areas. And there's no doubt we've seen even since starting Nightcap, actually, which is just three years ago, the real shift in the consumer of wanting, um, especially at the weekends, actually, of wanting some level of entertainment and actually live music has really had a big comeback and Priano Works brings that into our group you know we do a lot to entertain our guests on a on a Saturday across all of our bars actually um, but Piano Works brings this new dimension of um, of the live music which is your Christmas results were exceptional and a lot of bars and nightclubs maybe didn't do quite as well is that what you're sort of focusing on Sarah so it's two things you know firstly yes like there's just no place for average at all when you're in a big downturn in a, in a market it's you know we've had a couple of years actually they've been really tough for our industry you know coming out of COVID actually we had a beautiful boom year in late night and in hospitality but the last two years we've had a lot of headwinds um, we've pretty much suffered from every angle, whether we've been talking about train strikes or inflationary cost price, prices, um, you know, the the cost to the, the, the consumer struggling. I mean, everything's been thrown at us over the last couple of years. Um, but Christmas was two things. One, we had to make sure that what we were offering was was what the customer wanted this Christmas. And in fact, one of the things that we really found was that people coming into the sites were spending more than they that we'd expected them to spend. So when we have a lot of pre-bookings, um, so we know that big parties are coming in, we will we will forecast what we think we're going to take based on how many people are walking through the door. Actually, what happened is we did a lot better than we'd forecasted because not because of the, necessarily the number of people in the sites, but actually because of what they were spending when they were in there, um, which was really good. And the second thing is the sort of sales and marketing mix. And, you know, as a business, in fact, we're getting better and better at it, getting much more digital, uh, where we're starting to understand our consumer more. Uh, we're just investing in a new CRM, uh, which will make a really big difference as well to the way that we the way that we interact with our consumer across lots of different brands, right? So you have to think even like bringing Piano Works in now, it's we have similar customers across the group, but we have very, they are very different brands. And so you need to be able to interact with the consumer from a digital perspective to be able to attract them. How are they booking? How do you get them in? So you've got to not only be fantastic when people get in there, you've got to be fantastic before people get in there so that they want to come in and that they want to book. But times are tough, even for you, you guys who um, clearly understand your consumer, you're thinking hard about where the market is going, where the opportunities are. But there are a lot of headwinds, as you say. And I, I know in the latest release, you're talking about things softening since Christmas. What, what is the outlook for the business? Yeah, I mean, so I think January was tougher than 
everybody in hospitality thought. I mean, I haven't spoken to anybody that didn't say, wow, you know, what just happened in January. And and I think the the dry January has become a real thing. You know, one in five, the BBC released some figures recently to say one in five people, it used to be one in 50 are doing dry January. And that makes a difference. Of course, that means, you know, you've got to change your offering uh, to make sure that you can accommodate for that. But also at the same time, when it's late night bars, um, people are less inclined to go out to a late night bar when they're doing dry January, right? Thinking I'm going to have a super healthy month. Um, so yeah, January was softer. We're starting to see it come back in, in February. But we've had a, you know, an interesting and very important year to us in the sort of life cycle of a business that grows this quickly. Um, having got to nearly 50 bars in actually took us two and a half years um, is that across so many different brands. So every time you acquire a different business, you get a different head office, you get a different till system, a different finance system, a different marketing director, a different, I mean, everything. You, you, <laughs> it's chaos actually, but it's great. And I, you know, we wouldn't have it any other way. But this year has been that year, this last year for us has been that year that whilst we've had those headwinds, that it's been about really getting the structure right in the business. So we have spent a lot of time getting the people structure right. It's really important. So the people that sit around our immediate table, now having got that team right and having experts in those places, um, I'm really excited for this year. We've been talking to investors this morning, actually, some of the larger institutions, and there's a lot more optimism, certainly than there was last time we spoke to investors, um, about the market, the economy coming back. We're hoping for some good news on March the 6th, um, which will bring people wanting to feel more positive, actually, about investing in small cap businesses, but also... Um, the consumer feeling more positive about spending money again, you know, going out and actually and actually spending spending their cash. Michael, a lot of optimism, but we are in a recession. We've got an awful lot of warnings from other members of the hospitality sector about these huge issues which are facing businesses like yours. Uh, cost of living crisis, obviously, but also the impacts of the increase in the national living wage. How are you able to remain positive amongst such incredibly powerful headwinds? Well, I think I think there are a couple of things uh, that that are really important um, to understand about Nightcap that sets us a, sort of sets us apart. Is that we don't have a 30 or 40 or 50 year legacy. We are a business that we founded it three years ago and we have been very, very specific in terms of how we've acquired businesses, um, how we financed the acquisitions and the multiples we paid on those acquisitions. It was uh, the, the sort of second pillar uh, in our in, in coming to market and why we believe being a listed entity is absolutely right for a company like Nightcap. And that was coming out of COVID. We believed that businesses were, uh, there would be businesses that would be over leveraged, having too much debt from, uh, that had to take on while they were closed during COVID. And actually, therefore, equity uh, would have a disproportionately high value coming in. And you can see uh, in our acquisitions just how um, well we've acquired in terms of, well, effectively, how relatively 
cheap these businesses have been because of that that uh, that macro. But those businesses have still been very selective. Uh, we've been very selective when we've chosen them. Uh, we've uh, because we've needed to position ourselves. Um, what we see as perfectly for what the future consumer really wants. And that, of course, creates a lot of resilience as well, even in a, in a downturn. Sarah, Michael mentioned legacy. There might be some people listening to this, hearing your voice, watching on social media, thinking, I know that name. I know that face. <laughs> you were a dragon for two seasons. <laughs> yes. Oh, I loved it. It was so much fun. Yeah, really Really great, great thing to have experienced. 2015, 16, I think. Um, I think you might have actually, I think it might in terms of transmission also come a bit into 2017. But yeah, uh, great. It was great time. So there will be people thinking, all right, she knows her stuff. We're in recession. For businesses struggling at the moment, for maybe entrepreneurs thinking, I was about to launch a business. Should I do it? What advice would you give them? So I think there's never a bad time really to launch a business and there's never necessarily a particularly good time in general terms. You know, it totally depends on the product and the service that you're going to, um, that you're going to launch. More than ever at a, in a downturn though, cash is really important. And if there was ever a time to preserve that cash, it is now. You know, you've got to be very careful with taking any risks, especially in a consumer-facing business, when you perhaps don't have control of consumer sentiment and that the macro environment may change. You know, I always it depends on how big your business is and what business it is that you're 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 looking to start. I think there are, there will be still some businesses right now that will be absolutely perfect for this time, and it is opportunistic. And you know, we started Nightcap in the middle of um, well, in the middle of COVID, we were raising money to float as we were told we went from um, level two to level four of COVID. And then before we had finished our fundraise, which was a 10-day roadshow, uh, they announced a three-month national lockdown. Um, you know, when we first phoned our brokers to say that we were going to start the business, um, they were like, you're absolutely crazy. What are you talking about? Everybody in hospitality is shut. There is no vaccine for this virus. There was nothing and yet it was one of the most successful floats of 2021 on, on AIM. So, you know, we were a counter-cyclical business when we started it. And actually all of the headwinds that came with COVID were why we started the business. So it was going to be much cheaper property. They were going to be heavily indebted um, businesses that had taken on huge C bills, but actually their PL was still pretty strong. It was just more that their balance sheet was was off course, really, because of the C bills that they'd taken out. And there were a lot of disgruntled entrepreneurs that wanted to grow and wanted to take advantage, but were either backed now effectively by the bank, um, or it could have been private equity, or it could have been a high net worth that didn't really want to double down and didn't didn't want to take the risk. So, you know, with downturns and with recessions come always comes opportunity. In fact, with change comes opportunity. It's the status quo that that is 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 harder. So, 
you know, there's never necessarily a bad time or a good time in general to start a business. It entirely depends on what business it is that you do. But I would say, you know, like I would say at any time of the, whatever the economy is looking, looking like, start with, you know, what's my downside here? What's my real downside? Um, and if you can handle it, then give it a go. If you can't handle it, walk away. And, you know, the amount of times Mike and I might have come up with an idea and we've looked at the downside and we've gone, no, we've walked away. Very strong to walk away when you go, I'm not going to risk my house and I'm not going to risk my family and all my health or whatever it might be. Um, but you know what? I can I can afford that. And that might be time, reputation, um, some money, whatever it might be, you think I can, I can accept that risk. I'll, I'll give it a go. And Mike, I'm going to leave the last word to you. We've obviously got a budget coming up on March the 6th, which we mentioned earlier. If you could get one thing from the Chancellor that would help hospitality, your sector, what would it be? I think, you know, there are talks about two angles as one is on the costs, which is, you know, um, looking at rates and the cost of rates. Um, and but I think the other one um, on the uh, on the more on the sales side that really moved the needle is, of course, if they reduce the VAT for hospitality businesses to 10 percent, which is which is being talked about, that would have um, that would be have the right sort of impact um to compensate for uh the uh, i guess the contraction economic contractions that we've seen and the the higher cost base that the government has forced on hospitality but over the really since um the end of covid so that would be that would be uh, the major one well let's see what rabbits he's got michael sarah thank you so much for talking to me thank you for having us thanks a lot thank danny so, former Dragon Sarah Willingham and Nightcap co-founder Michael Toxford from Nightcap. There's been a lot of talk this week about what kind of headroom the Chancellor might have for tax cuts. So, Danny, what do you think we're going to see? There has been a whole lot of talk about what kind of rabbits Jeremy Hunt might might be able to pull out of his hat on the 6th of uh, March. And of course, whenever we get public sector finances out, when we are so close to a budget, everybody starts to really dig in and try and get some kind of idea about whether or not the Chancellor has more headroom, less headroom. And when the Office for National Statistics um, published uh, the figures a couple of days ago, it said that there was a public sector net borrowing surplus, it had cash in hand, of 16.7 billion last month. Now, that is more than double the surplus seen a year ago and actually the largest surplus since monthly records began back in 1993. Now, January is always a good year, a good year, a good month, because, of course, we get the self-assessment tax receipts. So we usually end up with a surplus in January. But this time it was a record surplus. Um, a lot of that was down to that old friend fiscal drag. Some of it was down to um, the increased corporation tax take. And a lot of people started talking about whether or not this would give the Chancellor more wiggle room. However, I think it's really important to note 
that although it was good, it wasn't quite as good as the surplus which had been penciled in by economists. So we're seeing a lot of um, headlines about the fact that potentially the Chancellor has around nine billion more than he thought he was going to have. But I think at the moment, particularly with the UK in recession, there are so many variables at play here. I think the fact the UK is in recession potentially makes it harder for the Chancellor to find the cash, but also pushes him to do something to stimulate the economy. The, the government of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, told MPs this week that he was pretty sure that the UK was already over the hump. So I, I thought there were there were two two important things that he was you know, from from this sort of, um, discussion he was having. Uh, one, one obviously is that you know this could have been the weakest recession by a long way by historical standards, um, and also. Is it indicating that inflation doesn't have to fall to 2% before the Bank of England starts to cut rates? So if we, if we just take the recession bit first, obviously, you know, recession uh, defined by if the economy fails to grow for, for two quarters in a row. Um, normally in this situation, people get you know, obviously worried, you know, thinking, what can we do to stimulate the economy? Are we in a, such a terrible situation? So ONS figures showed that the economy shrank by 0.3% between October and December. Um, it already contracted between July and September. So, if we're now got the situation where this, this recession is, is just temporary, you know that that's really good. Um, I also wonder whether Andrew Bailey is essentially trying to avoid um, too much doom and gloom, which kind of encourage or, or puts the pressure on the Bank of England to cut rates sooner, because he he definitely seems to want to wait for inflation to keep falling towards the two percent target. Um, before sort of giving the indication when these rate cuts might happen. So obviously inflation is is four percent at the moment. So um, we've got a bit of a way to go. But w- when he he did make he did, you know categorically said inflation doesn't have to be exactly two percent before we start cutting rates. And I think that's really that's important because people were saying, you know, when will you cut rates? Does it have to be exactly at this point? So we know that they can do it beforehand. Um, it might actually stir up. Um, speculation that you know rate cuts will happen sooner rather than later. Um, that would be positive for um, you know for, for, for lots of things really. So positive the stock markets, lower rates, lower you know, and if we get um, mortgage lenders trying to anticipate that rates could cut sooner, you know you might see cheaper mortgage rates there. Um, but obviously, if you're in the cash savings, you might see rates fall a little bit faster than they have been for a while. So they, these things sort of play two ways. Um, but I think it is you know, ultimately, if we, if we find out that this recession is temporary, I think that would be a big relief. And um, I, 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 this general sort of consensus moment is that even if, there, if we do stay in recession a bit longer, it's not going to be a severe one at all. It's quite interesting that Andrew Bailey was um, talking to MPs literally within hours of the uh, Bank of England's former chief economist, Andy Haldane. Um, who had said that he was really worried that the bank wouldn't move quickly enough, um, wouldn't react in time to stop the UK economy being crushed. And actually talking about potentially the credibility of the bank really coming into question, saying that they'd got it wrong on the way up and that 
they risk getting it wrong on the way down. So I think it was really important that Andrew Bailey did say that that magic 2% that really everyone's been clinging to, we're not going to see rates cut until we get to 2%. And it has changed market perception again. And it's now three cuts that by the end of the year that markets are pricing in again, had a bit of a wobble after those um, jobs numbers. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a fascinating and busy time at the moment with all of this economic um, data that that just keeps flooding out. Uh, I wanted to end by talking about cold, hard cash, though, something we all like. Yeah, me too, definitely. Banknotes, coins. Do you still carry cash, Dan? Oh, yeah, weirdly. I, I've been, I had some coins the other day. I, I got some my card wouldn't work. I was trying to buy a train ticket, so I had to put a ten-pound note in. It gave me mountains of change in every coin imaginable, and I thought, God, it's been. I, I could feel my wallet in my pocket. I thought, that, you know, you think it's quite heavy. Um, it's been ages, and you know, or years since I've had like, so, like that sort of money in my, um, you know, just prodding into my leg sort of thing. So <laughs> it was a very strange <laughs> sensation. I must admit, I don't have cash very often um, anymore. And I think when you get a note now, you sort of stop and you go, oh, yeah, that's what they look like. But they're about to change because on the 5th of June, brand new banknotes featuring the image of King Charles will enter circulation. And um, you can take a look at at how they're going to look. There are images all over the place. And it it's a weird, quite poignant moment to see this change because all of my life, Queen Elizabeth's face has been on banknotes and shoppers still will be able to use those banknotes. They're not just going to suddenly become obsolete. But it is quite a momentous moment, Dan. Yeah. Does this mean that old banknotes are going to be worth more than their face value, do you think? Collector's items or I imagine... Imagine maybe people well, be rushing to get the new ones and seeing that as exercise <laughs> very briefly. <laughs> I think initially, because you know you're still going to be able to use your old banknotes, they're not going to really make any kind of a difference. But I would imagine, you know, given time, yeah, those those banknotes will become collectors' items. Certainly, you know, something that you might want to keep just for historical reference. Um, but it, it it's a weird moment. I find it to be quite a quite a peculiar moment. In the same way that whenever the Queen's face was updated on a banknote, that was quite a moment as well. I, I remember the change happening there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the the last time last time we saw like quite a big change was when the the notes went to sort of the plastic material. Um, and I remember, you know, chatting in the office saying, oh, you've got, you know, someone's got one of those new new fancy notes. And I think this is all, this is quite interesting sort of thing. Huh? Um, but yeah, maybe maybe a different face on the on the, on the the note or might sort of people start sort of having a look again at cash. But I think ultimately, um, you know, the direction of travel is more card use, less cash. So um, yeah, uh, curiosity, I think, is the, is the it will be the key factor here rather than <laughs> th- this being a, tr- a sort of catalyst for, for change in how we use cash so anyway i think that's yeah, that's everything yeah. for this week i'll be chatting to george dent again from bny about semiconductors on next week's episode and tom and steve from shares magazine we're going to do a deep dive on disney 
Now, we'll also have all the latest markets and personal finance news with Danny. And Charlene Young is going to be joining us. She's now part of the permanent podcast team. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen. Thanks a lot. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares magazine. The podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not. Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.